0: Um, Psalm 119, we're going to, here's what we're going to do. Cause this is a long Psalm, uh, really long. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's also by itself longer than, uh, 17 books in the new Testament. So it's, it's a book on its own. Um, it is longer than all of the Old Testament minor prophets except for Hosea and Zechariah. Uh, those are a little longer. But so you've got many books in the Old and New Testament that are shorter than this one chapter. And so I thought we can't tackle this whole chapter in one sermon. It's just going to be impossible to do it any justice. So the weeks that I'm here with you, And that will be most of the summer. Uh, There should be about 11 Sundays, roughly, unless the Lord does something surprising (laughs) to us. Uh, I should be here 11 Sundays this summer. And we're going to tackle this psalm in those 11 weeks. Um, So what we're going to do is basically the structure of this psalm is, uh, it's an acrostic. And if you were here when we talked through Lamentations, Uh, You're you're familiar with the acrostics. It's a a form of poetry, uses the Hebrew alphabet to to just kind of structure the poem in that way. So in Psalm 119, you have, uh, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. You have 22 stanzas, and each stanza has eight verses. That's how it's structured. And uh, each of these eight verses will start with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it does not come through that way in, in English, okay? Because we've translated this, not me personally, somebody translated this from Hebrew into English, and it just, there isn't a, a, an equivalency in the languages. So you gotta it's not a huge thing, but it just is one of those interesting things about this psalm. So every verse will start with, A in the first stanza, the first eight verses, all will start with the letter A if we're talking English here. Let's simplify things. And I don't know Hebrew to save my life, so let's just be honest. Um, And then verse 9 through 16 will all start with the letter B, right, and so on and so forth. So that's how it's structured. Uh, It's a little interesting. Many people believe, most people believe that David wrote this psalm Gradually, over time, through the course of his life, and that explains uh, the length. That explains why there's there's so much, uh, yeah, just time taken that he would basically come back to this and compose this. Of course, we know he composed this through the Holy Spirit's guiding, leading, and inspiration, Um, but it was probably developed over a period of of years throughout uh, David's life, and so that's what most people think and. Ultimately, none of that is vital. It's just interesting, and that kind of sets up the, kind of the context of where we're at. Um, but as we get into this psalm, here's the thing. The main theme of this psalm is God's word, what God says. And there are so many different words that, that are used here to describe God's word. Uh, the word law is used. Testimonies are used. Uh, statutes, precepts, commandments. Uh, word. These are these are all synonymous in David's mind with what God says to us through his word. And I think it's just going to be really good to walk through this together, to focus this summer on the word of God and the importance of it in our lives. So I'm excited to do that. Okay, so with all that kind of background out of the way, let's we're going to turn our attention to the first 16 verses uh, this morning, and then the next time we'll be Another 16 verses and so on and so forth till we get through um, but let's just jump in the words will be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible or don't want to use it that way you can follow along with us there as well but we'll, let's look at the first four verses <clears throat> and I think this will this is going to get us I mean we could probably just do one sermon on these four but that's that's not going to happen so here we go um, here it says this Blessed are those. Alright, let's stop there. I know I always stop really soon after I start reading, right? Uh, blessed are those. This sets up the tone for the whole the whole psalm. What David is trying to get across is uh, it's, it's really foundational to the meaning of this psalm. It's this word blessed or blessed comes from the Hebrew word that essentially means. Uh, I'll summarize it this way: the good life, okay, um, a life of fulfillment, a life of contentment, a life of joy. Uh, in short, the kind of life that every human heart wants in their life, right? The reason that we are going after whatever we're going after, whether that's you know the newer car or the nicer house or the better job or the blah blah blah, right? We're, we're pursuing things because we want, we think those things will bring us some form of contentment. And what this psalm is going to talk about is how we truly experience the blessed life, the, the contentment that God has for us. And so that's, that's where this psalm is going to take us. And, but, but let's keep reading because it gets very interesting from here. Let's, look, blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Verse three, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Verse four, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Okay, let's, let's think about what David is saying here, what the scriptures are saying You know, we'll read this and go, okay, sounds all nice and kind of cute. You know, you might put this on a mug or something, a t-shirt, I don't know. But this is actually, as I read it, this is crushing. Think about what David's saying. To have the life that we all long for, the life of fulfillment, contentment, joy, satisfaction, to be fulfilled in life, what do we have to be? Blameless. We have to keep his testimonies. Verse three is the most haunting. We have to do no wrong. So, I mean, I I think I know the answer for you, but I'll just speak for myself. I'm out already. If that's the way in to the blessed life what chance do I have? What chance do you have? Are you blameless in all your ways? Of course you're not. Are you, have you kept him with your, or sought him with your whole heart? Of course you haven't. Are you walking in his ways perfectly? Have you done no wrong? Of course. So, so here's, here's the issue. This is a crushing psalm if we don't see it through the lens of Jesus. We, we have to. We have to go somewhere outside of ourselves because otherwise we're all out. We, we have no hope of this. This is unattainable. If that's the standard, we're done. We might as well just go home. You don't have to go home. Okay, there's good news here. See, Jesus is actually the only one who can truly fulfill this. And if we don't read it through the finished work of Christ, We're going to read verses that will absolutely destroy us. They will crush us. Or we will just go through life faking it, pretending like it's all good. And at the end of the day, we won't attain it anyways. Jesus is the only one who could fulfill this. And so, listen, to to get to where we all long to be, to have this blessed life, our only hope is seeing that these things are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus and us being united to him. So we've got to do some work here. I mean, I'm, I know we're only four verses in, but we've got to do a lot of work here to try to understand how this applies to us through the lens of the gospel. And I'm going to take you to three places in the New Testament to help us get this. Um, Matthew 5, 17 through 20 is first. Um, Here's what Jesus says there. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's he's speaking of himself, but he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to, what's that word? You can say it, to fulfill them. Yeah. Yeah. For truly, I said to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law, until, so there will be a day that these things pass from the law, and that, that day is when all is accomplished. So is all accomplished at the second coming of Christ, or is all accomplished at the work of Christ on the cross and resurrection? That's for theologians to argue about, but here's what we know. Either way, this is fulfilled in Jesus. And my view would be that it's on the cross and resurrection. Remember, this is very early on in Jesus' ministry. He still had a couple years to go here as he's saying these words. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, exceeds their righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, Jesus is sort of doubling down on what Psalm 119, 1-4 says. You have to be blameless. You have to follow this thing. But notice that the, the key in this is verse 17 that Jesus came not to abolish the law or the prophets. He's not throwing away the Old Testament with his ministry, but he actually came to fulfill those things. So if you want one verse that's going to help you do Bible interpretation in the Old Testament, it's this, Jesus fulfills this. Whatever you're reading, anything you're reading, Jesus fulfills this. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. Uh, the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. It's pointing to him. It's it's brought, drawing our hearts to him. And so he didn't come to abolish those things. He came to fulfill them. And then he says that we do need to continue, or at least he's speaking to the audience he's speaking to and saying, we, you you do need to continue in, in this until all is accomplished. But then in verse 20, he uses this phrase, that, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's some heaviness there too, right? So, so here's the question: How does our righteousness ever exceed the Pharisees and the scribes? How can we get there? Um, well, let's let's take a journey through a couple other places. Let's go to Romans eight. We just spent some time in Romans eight not too long ago as a church, and but I think it's worth revisiting here big time because this all kind of answers the question for us. I think Paul brings this about in in light of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul's explaining how all this plays out and what this looks like. Look at verse one through four of Romans eight. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because, so here's why there's no condemnation, because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. So the Spirit of God sets us free from the law that we're talking about in Psalm 119. We're set free from that. And here's how we're set free from that. Look at verse 3. Because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. You hear that? God has done, God has done what the law, weakened by our sinfulness, could not do. And what is that? By sending his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And this is huge. This is massive. Verse 4 In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Well, that's surprising. I thought it was fulfilled in Jesus. I thought Jesus said he fulfills the law. He does. And as we're in him, the law is fulfilled in us. How is that possible? Let's go one more place here. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 verses 8 through 11 I can find it in my Bible here. Here we go. Verses, uh, yeah, 8 through 11, let's look at this. This is where Paul articulates this even further. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, verse 9 is key. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So so here's here's what Paul's teaching here. It's it's vital. He's teaching a theology that we call, that we refer to as imputed righteousness. Okay. So imputed righteousness means that we have righteousness that isn't ours, it's given to us. That's what Paul says in verse 9, right? That he has a righteousness that isn't from his own life through the law, but actually a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So we have the righteousness of God imputed to our lives through faith in Christ, and that is how we can stand now in this this psalm that we're looking at and go, okay, all right, this is, if we're in Jesus, then we are blameless. If we're in Jesus then we we have done no wrong. He doesn't count our wrongs against us, right? That doesn't mean that we're practically perfect, right? We still sin, we still struggle, of course. It doesn't mean that we've somehow magically stopped being sinful, but what it means is that all of our sin is not held against us because when God the Father looks at you as you are in Christ, he doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as he would see Jesus. The uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. That's what what Martin Luther refers to as the great exchange, that we get all of Jesus' righteousness, he takes all of our sin. He gets the sin, We get his righteousness. That's a heck of a deal, you guys. Like, heck of a deal. Because we don't deserve that. We haven't earned that. He just gives that to us by faith. And so we have to understand Psalm 119 through that lens. If we don't understand that we can stand before God blameless and therefore be able to enter into the life that he has for us, these words will crush us. They will destroy us. And so we have to read this through the lens of Jesus and what he's done to accomplish the law for us and then give us the righteousness that he lived. That's amazing. Okay, so that's the first four verses. We've got a lot more to go through. And um, Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go starting in verse five and working our way down to verse 16. What you see happen next is essentially the, um, the outflowing of this reality in our lives. Okay, so what David's gonna walk through is, hey, here are the ways that this actually looks in our lives as we live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, as we are united to him by faith and he begins to work in us and transform us and make us what he wants us to be. These are the things that are going to start to flow out of our lives. Now, again, not in perfection, not, con- not always consistently, but that's, that's why we need to make distinctions between justification, meaning that we've been made right with God through faith in Christ, and sanctification, which is the process that He takes us on after we're justified, to make us like Jesus. And so, what we're seeing in verses, uh, really in uh, yeah, verse six through uh, five through sixteen, are eleven results or pro- or things that are in the process of sanctification that come into our lives as we embrace Him by faith. So, we're talking about the I use the cart and horse analogy all the time, right? Good works. Don't drive the cart to God's grace. God's grace drives the cart of of good things that flow from us. All right, so now we're going to enter into, through these verses, we're going to see 11 things, 11 things that that God does through us and in us as he stands in our place for our sins in Christ. And, uh, man, so it's going to be an 11-point sermon, guys. Good. Welcome to church. We're already like half an hour in, and we still got 11 points, so... Here we go. Now we'll go quick. We'll go quick. So let's look at it. Uh, verse five says, uh, "Oh, that my way, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes." So right. So there's this heart of steadfastness that, as God gets a hold of our hearts, we want to walk with Him. We start. Our desires start to change. I think I just came up with the twelfth one. So there we go. Right. Right. See. I didn't prepare very well, did I? No. Um, But that's that's where he goes. And then that's kind of a transitional verse, and then we start to get into, let's look at verse six. It says, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. The first thing that is mentioned in this psalm that, that, that happens to us as we embrace Jesus by faith is We lose our shame. Jesus doesn't just take your sin, he does that, but he also takes all your shame. It's gone. Listen, you may not feel like your shame is gone. You might be holding on to things that you've done or that have been done to you that has led to shame. That's a real human struggle. Every one of us faces it. Every one of us looks back on our lives with regret, with with a sense of, oh man, I cannot believe I did that. But here's the thing. If you let that eat your soul, you're not gonna gonna live in the in the blessed life that God has for you. You have to give Jesus your shame. He takes it. It's what he did on the cross. He didn't just take your sin. He also removes any shame that you hold in your life. And the practical thing here is this. If you're holding on to shame, if there's something that's just eating you alive because you're, you're thinking and dwelling on the past, you need to hand those things over to the Lord Jesus and say, Jesus, you died to take away this shame. Would you take this from me? Would you help me to be healed? And I don't know that he'll do that in an instant, in a moment, but you continue to do that. You continue to call out to him. He does take away your shame. This is one of the beautiful results of the gospel, that our shame is removed. Let's look at verse seven. Keep going here. It says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Praise is what pours out of our lives as we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see praise building in us towards God and pouring out of us in worship. Our hearts begin to to actually be drawn to him. Now listen, again, I want to emphasize this. Not all these things are always going to be present in your life at every moment there will be Sundays you walk in this room and you go, I have no praise in my heart at all, but I'm here. You're in a good spot because God will meet you wherever you are. Wherever you are walking into this room, you will be met by the Lord Jesus. And I know that. I, I fully believe that. But, but this is something that grows in us as we embrace him and grow in him. We, we see praise pour out of our lives. Look at verse 8. He says, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Here's another practical work of the gospel in our lives. We are not forsaken. We're not forsaken because Jesus has come into our lives and he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There is no risk in Jesus of being left in the cold. There's no risk in Jesus of having him forsake you or leave you or abandon you. He will never do it. You are never alone in Jesus. That is one of the beautiful outcomes of the gospel. Look at verse 9 and 10. 9 is a, starting the second, um, second stanza. And so it's kind of, a, again, a transitional verse. And it starts with a question. And it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So this is speaking to the importance of, of hearing from God, listening to his word, and, and submitting to him in those things as a, as a way to actually grow in Jesus, right? So that's kind of the transition. But let's look at verse 10. This gets us to the next thing that we see. It says, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. The fourth thing we see in this text is this, that it, as, as we grow in grace, we will seek God more and wander less. I don't say we will never wander, because that's not true. We will. We'll still struggle with that. But as we grow, we should be seeing a, an upward trajectory of, of wanting to see the Lord more, seeking Him out, longing for a relationship with Him, and, and our hearts wandering away from Him less. Right, we we just sang a song at the front of this that we are prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love that is true we are prone to this but that's why we need jesus to to his love to hold us like a fetter have you ever you, you probably saw that word and you're like what is a fetter a fetter is like literally a ball and chain <laughs> But that's where this, this songwriter is like, he is like, I know I want to run from God, so I need his love to hold on to my ankle like a fetter and just keep me to him. We need God to do that in us, and he does. He starts to work in us so that we will start, so our hearts will wander less and less as we grow in him. Let's look at verse 11. It says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. As we grow in grace, we take God at his word. We hold it up like it's a mirror. We compare it to our lives and we say, okay, I don't line up to this. Here are the sins that, this, that God's word is showing to me. I'm going to repent of those. I'm going to turn away from them, right? So we, we grow in God's word and our hearts grow towards repentance and not rebellion. Let's look at verse um, 13 here, 12 and 13. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. I declare, right? That's the, that's the verb in there, right? And here, here's the thing. As we grow in grace, we begin to have a mouth that speaks of God that he's on our lips he's on our he's on our tongue we are we're speaking his word we're speaking his words as and as we engage with others we want people to know this great God who saved us and so we begin to speak of him and we tell of him we talk of what he's done for us we we express that to those around us we that's something that happens as we grow and again this may be a, there may not be a season in your life where that's true but this is, this is an area in which God begins to work in us, turning us away from timidity to boldness to share the gospel and to speak of his word and his works. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. All right, so I don't know how old you are, or if this was your generation or not, but when I was a kid, we watched DuckTales, all right? DuckTales was the show, man. I loved it. And you know Scrooge McDuck and like how happy he was to swim in his gold, Like he was just so happy. That was like his, that was his place, right? Now that's so sick and twisted, right? It's like, it's weird. And it probably was extremely uncomfortable, but he was a cartoon, so it didn't matter. But, you know, that idea of delighting in God as much as in all riches. It's like, think about just that pile of money, you know, and it's like, oh, I want to swim. That's where our sinful hearts go. But as God is growing in us and growing his grace in us, we begin to delight in God as our true treasure. That he is the treasure that our hearts long for and want to be with. That it's no longer our our desire to accumulate wealth here and now, but our desire is to grow into Christ and into delight with him. Verse 15 says, I will delight or meditate rather in, on your precepts. We'll stop there. I will meditate on your precepts. As God grows grace in us through the finished work of Christ, he fills our thoughts and our minds with him. And our minds begin to meditate, like not in like an Eastern mysticism kind of way, but in a, in a true giving, pouring our thought energy and life into knowing God and who he is and what he's done, right? We, we want to meditate on him and we know that, we know him through his word, right? So that's, we, we, we should be reading our Bibles and then thinking about what we're reading and going, okay, it's not just a checkbox I'm, I'm, I'm knocking off here for the day, but I should be sitting in his word and going, what, is, what does this say to me about him, about Jesus? How is this growing me, right? So we meditate on those things. That's one of the th- ways that God grows us. He fills our thoughts and minds with thoughts of him. Second half of 15 says, and fix my eyes <clears throat> on your ways. Oh, excuse me, sorry. We fix our eyes on him as we grow. <clears throat> we fix our eyes. Right, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. We 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 turn our gaze on Jesus as we grow in him. We, We don't look away. We keep our eyes on him. Okay, two more. Verse 16, first half of it. I will delight in your statutes. I will delight in your statutes, meaning that our hearts actually have an emotional happiness when we're with him. I'm going to have to cough here, just one second. Got a thing in my throat here, but okay. We, we delight in him. We, we find him to be our joy, our happiness. Like we want to be with him. Just like you want to be with the people you love, we want to be with Jesus. And then the last line here is, I will not forget your word. We will bring to mind who he is and what he's done every single day. Sorry. Um, here's, the, here's the thing. I'm going to just have to cough real, real bad here. I'm, you know, it happens. We're, I'm a human, so. Okay, I think I might be good. All right. We remember him daily, meaning that we draw our hearts every day to, to his finished work. But here's the thing. Tangibly, tangibly, every Sunday morning we do this. We do this through communion. We do this through remembering his death for us. And that's, that's why we do it every week. We do it every week that we come here, we bring ourselves to his table <coughs> because we need to be reminded of what he's done. We need to be reminded of the finished work of Jesus, right? We, we can't forget his word and we can't forget his work. We need the reminders Martin Luther was asked one time why he preaches the gospel at his church every week. And his response, very Lutheran response here, Luther is, he's real good with words, right? He says, because every week we forget it. And and it's true. Every week we forget because every week we go through the daily grind of life that distracts us, that draws our hearts away, that keeps us from, from thinking of him all the distractions in your life, they're all always around you. And so we need those tangible moments to come back into gathered worship, to hear his word preached, to sing praise to him. And in our, at least in our church, in the way we feel convicted to do this, is to partake of the Lord's table. Because there is no better reminder of Christ and what he's done for us than to do what he tells us to do and, and to take this bread and juice or bread and wine if you want to be actually literal. Um, we, don't, we, we use Welches, you know, so it's fine. Um, but, we, but we take this cup and we take this bread and these are, these are not like, there's no magic in these, right? These are symbolic of who he is, what he's done, his body, his blood. And he tells us to do this in remembrance of me. And so we draw our hearts to him. we don 't want to forget him. we don 't want to forget his word. we don 't want to forget his work. We need the reminders. so So I, I think that 's a great segue into our response time and our we, we, we spend the, the back end of our worship service singing and partaking of the table and giving of our tithes and offerings. and the reason we do that after the sermon is because we've heard God's word, now we have something to actually respond to. We've seen Jesus and we can can actually do something now in our hearts. I hope that the Lord has done something in your heart in the last 30, 40 minutes to draw you to him. And so I'm going to encourage you to, to think about these things and to see that because of the righteousness of Christ, because of the finished work of Jesus, you are completely secure and righteous in him. And you can enter into the life of blessing that's just been described through these words. This is, the, this is really the tangible outpouring of the blessed life that we get to see our shame removed, that we're not forsaken, all the things we've just walked through. So, with that on the forefront of our minds, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll encourage you to partake in worship here in just a moment. So let me pray. Father in heaven, we're, we're grateful for you. As we've just sat under a little piece of your word, God, I pray that our hearts would be drawn to Jesus and you know every single human heart in here and you know every one of us perfectly. So I pray you would meet us in whatever ways we need to be met today, if that's in in some encouragement or some conviction, that that you would do it in our lives. And I pray uh, that you would continue to meet us throughout the day, throughout the week. And we lift all these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.